Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Well, good morning, North Sound family. And uh, Jenny, it was nice to have you for the first time, I think, playing a keyboard for us uh, in the morning. Great to see all of you, and welcome to our folks uh, who are watching online. Um, we have a, a good crew, uh, and part of the reason for that good crew is because we have um, Dan Eagle. Where are you, Dan? I'm look, there's Dan over here, and um, we are excited to have you and Kim back with us. Uh, Dan and his wife Kim are regular viewers of our, of our services from uh, California where they have been. And uh, it's great to have you uh, with us today. One of the reasons why we have such a great viewing audience is because we have Dan being an evangelist with folks in Latin America. And so to those of you who are watching because of Dan from Ecuador and uh, from Guatemala, uh, we say Dios le bendiga and how wonderful it is to have you with us. We have probably a third uh, plus, I don't know exactly how many, but we have quite a few uh, of our congregation who are still watching online, some from different places around the world. I've mentioned Northern Ireland, Washington, D.C., uh, up and down the coast here. Uh, we have a number of folks who are joining and a number of, of North Sound families who either um, are, are sort of hybrid where they're at church occasionally but watching online and also um, those who are still not comfortable uh, coming back. So we greet all of you and are glad that you uh, choose to join us. want to uh, welcome uh, Ron and Wanda Summers. Uh, thank you for being with us this morning. These folks are related to uh, Casey and Sherry who are on the platform singing this morning and have been lifelong missionaries. I got a whole, I got a whole quick summary of the various places you folks have been. So yeah, welcome to North Sound. It's great to have you. Uh, and then also want to express our condolences to Walt uh, and to Tony and the passing of their son, Scott, uh, unexpectedly um, this week. May the Lord be with you folks and comfort and walk with you in this season. I had my own um, challenge this week. Um, I was uh, standing at the back with, um, with uh, our elder who also functions as a, the head hospitality person for North Sound, John Campbell. And we were John, we were singing this song. I, I actually had, uh, if you saw me over here on the side looking up the words, um, the, uh, the, the words for the song were um, Broken Vessels, Casey, Amazing Grace. Broken Vessels. Did you know that was the name of the song too? <laughs> it gets even more interesting. Broken Vessels. And if you roll down, it says, um, let's see. Uh, oh, I can see you now, I can see you now, love in your eyes, laying down yourself. And John at that moment looked to me and said, laying down yourself has new meaning for you. Well, this week I laid down my motorcycle, and if you saw me um, walking a little gingerly up here, um, it's because my, my left side is a bit of a mess, um, and uh, so we're, I'm hoping that, it, it you know, as far as I know, no broken bones. This week I'll have a uh, test to see about the rotator cuff. My shoulder's pretty sore, but by God's grace, it could have been so much worse. And uh, what I learned about it is that it happened so fast. My goodness, one moment I was riding, and the next moment 
Um, and I don't remember much of what happened in between. The bike was on top of me. Those of you that are riders in the congregation, men and women, if you would please talk to Barb afterwards, who is my riding partner, and tell her how safe it is to be on a motorcycle, and this is just a very rare, rare kind of an incident. Could you? What? She just told me I'm getting old. Wes, how old were you when you had your... You remember? 70? And it was on the same motorcycle. And the same side of that motorcycle. So, goodness, I don't know what the deal is with that. Anyway, welcome to North Sound Church. It's good to see you all, and uh, I'm delighted that you're here. And I'm doing well. If you see me limping a little bit, it's... um, you don't want to see why. <laughs> it could ruin your whole lunch. So anyway, um, we, uh, we are continuing our series on the first chapters of Genesis. And before we do that, or as we do that, I wanted to share um, something with you. So um, you know that I was born in the USA, right? Do you, do you like the guy that did it originally or, or my the guy that did it originally, that's what I thought. Okay. So anyway, uh, born in the USA, but I grew up in Canada. When I was seven, we moved to Canada, and I met uh, a beautiful young woman who was six years old at the time, who sometime later became my wife. Can you believe that? Anyway, um, we, uh, our entire lives, have had Elizabeth as our queen. Queen Elizabeth has been the ruling monarch all of our lives. Now, I know Americans kind of adopt the queen, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but in Canada, it was a very important part of our life. When we would have an event, like we sing here, the Star Spangled Banner up there, at the beginning of the event, we would sing, O Canada, and at the end of the event, we would sing, God Save the Queen. Right, Pastor Robin? Yeah, thank you. And so we got to know, you know, the words, and she was our queen. And this spring, I don't know how many of you watched any of it, but she had her 70th Jubilee celebration. She's been queen for 70 years. And uh, that's longer than any uh, reigning English or British monarch, and uh, even longer than Queen Victoria. So it's quite a deal. Uh, my brother, who still lives in Canada, so the rest of the family, uh, uh, my siblings live in the United States, but Gord lives up in British Columbia, and he sent out this brief video about a story, a uh, true story, that is told by one of the, the royal protection officers about a story that happened to the Queen and a couple of American tourists. So let's, well, it's just very brief, we'll watch together. And normally on these picnic sites, you, you meet nobody, but there was two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? (laughs) And she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. (laughs) And he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thinking. He said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. And as quick as a flash, says, well, I haven't. The dick here meets her regularly. (laughs) So the guy said to me, oh, you've met the Queen. What's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times. (laughs) But she's got a lovely sense of humor. 
Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes around, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye, and then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America, and hopefully someone tells him who I am. And normally, on these picnic sites, you, so, you meet nobody. I, I don't know if you've noticed, so uh, John, who I was, John Campbell, who I was talking about earlier's mom was, uh, was English, and uh, I, we were talking between services about how Americans tend to be the, the butt of, of, of British stories and jokes. Uh, they just, for some reason, they just like picking on us, I guess, but unfortunately, it's often well-deserved. There's a, there's a wonderful Churchill story from World War II where he was at a hotel in London uh, in, a, in, a, in a side room in a hotel, and an American uh, GI soldier, probably somewhat inebriated, barged in, saw Churchill and yelled, hey, fatso, where's the John? <laughs> and Churchill responded by saying, if you go down the hall and make a left turn, you'll see a door that has a sign, gentleman, on it. Pay no attention to the sign. <laughs> So we need to honor the creator of heaven and earth. And why did I start this way? Well, it was because preachers in Canada would remind us of how we are to be in the presence of royalty. If you're in the presence of royalty, you bow if you are a man. If you are a woman, you curtsy, you show honor. There are protocol rules about who gets to speak and who doesn't. And all of that formality because you're in the presence of the monarch, of the queen of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and the Commonwealth, and you need to behave in such a way. And it's a reminder that we worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and in our demeanor and in our relationship with the Lord, we need to respect that with Him. But kind of like the Queen having a, a great sense of humor, we also need to recognize that Jesus called His Father Abba, the Aramaic word for daddy. He had that kind of a closeness of relationship, and we are invited into that relationship, and we're going to talk more about that as we get a little farther in today. So there were, as we approach now our passage uh, that we're going to spend some time in, we're going to go back to creation. And you know how Different professions like to boast of the, the uh, prestige of their particular profession. And so there was a surgeon and an engineer and a politician who were in a discussion with each other over a pint, and they were bragging about the prestige of their particular professions. And so they decided that they would do it by looking at who had the oldest of the professions that were represented there. And the surgeon, of course, was the one that came up with the idea. And he said, fellas, who do you think was there assisting God when he took the rib out of Adam? Surgeon, of course. And the engineer said, well, he said, I've got you beat. Farther back than that was when God created out of the watery chaos who do you think but the engineer helped God in that act of creation? 
And the politician said, I've got you both beat. Who do you think created the chaos? (laughs) I probably need to be careful in these sensitive times regarding political stories. So last time we talked about the creative hymn that is Genesis chapter 1. And for those of you that weren't here, we talked about the fact that it could be uh, the creation could have happened because of the nature of Genesis 1, the type of literature it is, um, could have happened a very long time ago or could have happened uh, 6,000 years ago. Young earth or long uh, uh, ancient earth, old earth could both fit into our understanding of Genesis chapter 1 as we understand that. And the reason a lot has to do with the fact that that our text deals with the who and the why of creation, not so much the how and the when. So remember, we've talked about exegesis, we've talked about hermeneutics, and so what we have wanted to do is to understand what it meant to the original folks and what it means to us today. So this morning, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about what on earth are we here for? What's our purpose as it's related to creation and the story of Genesis chapter 1? So I want to start again. Pastor Robin did a wonderful job last week, and we're kind of going to be on the same passage today. But uh, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. So I mentioned uh, a, a helpful resource from a gentleman by the name of Ross. There was outline I love of this particular passage, and I'm going to use that as kind of our outline for us this morning. When he talks about, from this passage, God's divine plan for us, for the world, God's divine pattern for us and the world, and God's divine purpose. So let's unpack these further. The first one is God's divine plan from verse 26, where he says, let us make man or humankind. So in countless sermons, you've heard me wax eloquent about before creation, God lived in the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And having lived in that community, it's interesting to me that in creation, we have all three persons of the Trinity represented. We have God the Father, who is the creator of heaven and earth. We have the Spirit hovering over that watery chaos over the waters and according to John 1 it says in the beginning was the word in in John logos or word is the word that's used to describe Jesus so we have in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God so we've got all three of them back there interestingly in the beginning Stan Grintz um, is a theologian that I just love, and he had an untimely death in his 50s. It's one of those things I don't understand in God's larger providence. This guy had many more years to bless the kingdom with his theological insight, but we just don't know that. We don't know what God has in mind. But on the cover of his book, Theology for the Community of God, is the... uh, The picture that um, Liz is going to put up for us, this is the icon uh, from about, Nancy, I think it's about 1200, something like that, um, of uh, Rublev, uh, Rublev's Trinity, a Russian uh, uh, iconographer. And 
Um, I have this on my wall and Nancy has it on her wall in her office. And in my case, when we were up in Alaska and my brother John's boat, we took off from Sitka and Sitka was the former capital of Alaska when Alaska was uh, owned, as it were, by the Russians. And so right in the center of town is a Russian Orthodox church. And then beside it, there is a a store, a Russian Orthodox store. And I found um, this icon there in the store. And that's what's hanging on the wall in my office. The reason for me, and I assume for Pastor Nancy, is that it's a reminder of the community that God lives in as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now um, those fundamental purposes of God, our community, are lived out through creation and the creation of human beings to exist in fellowship with him. So if we look at the Bible as a whole, we begin to see this divine plan unfold. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a relationship of love, and the world exists because of that loving relationship where love grows and was expanded to include us. This is part of God's essence, which is love. And just as the members of the Trinity live in community, so we are called to live in community. Living in community as followers of Jesus Christ, it goes from Genesis to Revelation in the scriptures. So I'm going to give you some verses really quickly here just to show this. And this is by no means all of the verses related to God's plan for community. But you might want to jot them down in case you want to refer to them later. So here we go. Just fasten your seatbelt. I'm going to do them quickly. In Genesis 2.8, we read, it's not good for human beings to be alone. We were made for community. Later in the book of Genesis, the patriarchs of Israel memorialize those special times when they experienced the presence of God. That's uh, Genesis 28, 13 to 17. Remember how the presence of God met with the children of Israel in the day in a cloud and in the night in a pillar of fire. And in the New Testament, we have the fact that Jesus comes to us in the context of community. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's, that's a name that is given to Jesus. Jesus is meant to live in community with us. John 1.14 reminds us of this commitment to community. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus promised that when he returned to the Father, the community he created would continue because he would send the Holy Spirit. John 14.23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father uh, will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In the book of Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4, we see God himself will dwell with us. Before I read this, I have just skipped over so much of the scripture that deals with the community of God, which is the church. We are the body of Christ. We are his community. But in going from Genesis to Revelation, we jumped ahead. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, we read this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 22, no longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship with him. Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord Almighty and the Lamb, and the city was in no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In Ephesians, the passage that was read for us by 
uh, by Kathy this morning. Uh, by the way, when I, when, I, when I gave Kathy the passage, when Casey gave her the passage, um, I'm not sure I realized quite how long it was. And when Kathy was looking over it this week, Greg, her husband, said, man, I could drive all the way to Portland while you read that one. So <laughs> thank you, Kathy, for, uh, for doing that. I appreciate that. I'm not, going to, uh, I'm not going to reread it except to say that it talks about uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how in Christ the barriers between the two of them have been, have been taken down and we can have complete fellowship because of Jesus Christ. We can worship together because of Jesus Christ. So it's no wonder that in heaven we see people from every tribe and every nation. This week I saw a statistic on Washington State that said one-third of the population of Washington State are either new um, uh, immigrants, first-generation immigrants, or the children of first-generation immigrants. And that's different than those of you that look like me who have been in the United States for many years when we were young, our our country didn't look like that. We have had the world come to us, and frankly, I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. Um, Because, because we read that in the future, that's what heaven's going to look like. People from every tribe and every nation are going to be with us. So there are things, if you've been at North Sound very long, that there are sort of... um, stories that are like paradigmatic stories for me. I just, I repeat them because they're just so powerful for me and worth repeating. And so um, if you're new to North Sound, get used to it, okay? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to hear stories from me. And uh, this is one that I know I have shared before, but the point I have been making up to this point in the talk is that God has made us for community community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who itself is a community, the community of the body of Christ, the church. We are made for this. We are made for community. And in heaven, we are going to be living in community. You know, I I love C.S. Lewis. And the piece that you have heard from me before, I'm going to read again from The Great Divorce. And the reason for this is that he describes hell as the opposite of community. Okay? If heaven is living in community, then hell must be the inverse of that, which is not living in community. And so, well, The Great Divorce is a book. I'm just going to read one little little section of it to you. And I want you to use your imagination and think about this. Think about hell as the opposite of the community that God has given us as his plan for the world. So a new arrival in hell asks about life there. It seems a deuce of a town, I volunteered, and it's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a much larger population? Not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is, they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If so, he settles in. But if by chance the street is full, he goes further. But if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've only got a think house, and there it is, and that's how 
The town keeps growing. He says, there's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live millions of miles away. Millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you would meet historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away. The dearest of those old ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They'd started long before I came, of course, but I was here when they came back, about 15,000 years of our time. It took them. We've picked out the house by now, just a little pinprick of light and nothing else near for millions of miles. But they got there, I asked. That's right. He had built himself a huge house all in the empire style, rows of windows flaming with light, though it only shows as a pinprick from where I live. Did they see Napoleon? That's right. They went up and looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was there all right. What was he doing? He was walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested, and muttering to himself all the time, it was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment, a little fat man, and he kind of looked tired, but he didn't seem able to stop. Friends, if you don't like people, you better change because you're going to be experiencing eternity not alone, but in community. Perhaps you heard the old expression, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory, to live below with saints we know, that's quite another story. This is a great proving ground for us, getting us ready for eternity in community. We would better get used to loving other people. I have a friend who is a pastor in Bothell, and his church is about the same size as North Sound Church. And uh, over the course of the pandemic, he has had 30 people move essentially from this blue state into uh, red states, apparently for political reasons. Eli J. Finkel in the journal Science speaks of the phenomenon that is dividing our country. And he calls it political sectarianism. And he says it has three components. The first component is what we call othering or labeling. These are people are so different from us that they're almost incomprehensible. This is the first stage of looking at people who see things differently politically. The first stage is that called othering, where we see people as so different from us that they're incomprehensible. We can't even understand them. The second part we call aversion. This is the idea they're not just different, but they're dislikable. So they just don't see the world differently, but they're not, they're not likable people. And then the third part is what he calls moralization. And that is we move from thinking they're incomprehensible to thinking that um, they're dislikable to finally believing they're morally bankrupt. Friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are told to even love our enemies. 
of course we want to be devoted to truth. We want to support that which is right and good and just. But we are also called to reach out in love. The next insight we have is that of the divine pattern, and that is that God, that we are created in God's image. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Scholars believe that the plural here, remember the exegesis part of this, um, probably didn't mean to the, to the Jewish people the Trinity because the Trinity has been a definite Christian development. But it is curious that here the word our is used, the plural is used. Last week, Pastor Robin did a wonderful job talking to us about the meaning of the term the image of God and particularly what it means for how we live our lives. It's actually a fairly complicated question when somebody asks you, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There there are several thoughts of scholars on this. One is that the image of God are the natural attributes of human, like reason and personality that animals don't have. Another is mental and spiritual attributes that we have that are shared with God. Another is a physical resemblance to God, and another is that The image is the capacity to relate to God, but I think Robin landed on what I would uh, observe to be the correct one as well, and that is the image of God makes humans God's representatives on earth. You remember he brought a mirror out and talked about reflecting. As human beings, we reflect God's image with our lives. To use another expression, we are God's vice regents. So, We don't hear the term regent often. If you look at the University of Washington's um, administration, you'll see somewhere up there that there's a regent uh, typically associated with a large university. But it's not a word that we use all the time. A regent comes from the Roman regens, which means one who reigns. And often a regent is given where you have a transition of power where, say, the next generation of royalty, if, if Prince William was not available uh, and, and uh, Prince Charles was not available and only Prince William's young son, there would be a regent who would come into power until he was able to assume power. And that regent would act as a representative of the crown. And so we are designated as regents because we are created in the image of God. And now our responsibility is to carry forward his plan as his regents. Human beings are called in this text to rule or to have dominion over the earth and its inhabitants, which is obviously a royal task. Canada was called the dominion of Canada under the leadership of royalty under the monarch. Do you understand how powerful this is? How powerful is it that we share in the very mission of God as his vice regents to see his purposes accomplished in the world? It feels sometimes like when we live our ordinary lives um, that our lives may not be that significant, but the fact is the scripture says every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are his vice regents to see his will done in the world. That is so powerful. We're co-rulers. We're co-creators with him 
and we live so far below our calling. Again, C.S. Lewis says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, when we pray your kingdom come as Nancy led us this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just a vertical prayer to God. It's a reminder to ourselves that as vice regents, as co-creators, as co-rulers with God, we are called in this moment to work towards his kingdom coming and his will being done. Finally, um, I close this morning with uh, the final point, which is the divine purpose, which is to let them have dominion. Genesis 1.26. So we just spoke of the image of God in terms of us carrying creation forward. The image of God is greatly related to our purpose. To have dominion is to rule, it's to carry God's creation forward. Some of you may remember the story of the gentleman who created a phenomenally beautiful English garden. If you have ever been to Victoria, you've probably gone to the Bouchard Gardens. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. There is a direct relationship, I believe, between God, the creator, and beauty. And beauty reminds us to go vertical with with God. And so this gentleman had done this amazing job, not not on the scale of a Bouchard Gardens, but a lovely English garden nonetheless. And he had a friend over who lived outside the state, had never been there, and took him through his garden. And the friend was amazed at the garden. And he said to his friend, he said, wow, isn't it amazing what God has done? And his friend said, you should have seen it when God had it. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? Well, that's not being sacrilegious. It's saying that God at creation has given us dominion to take things forward, to make them beautiful using the resources that he has given us. Stan Grenz, um, in a beautiful paragraph in the book of theology that I mentioned, describes our glorious future. And so just before, I, I am just about to close, but before I do, I want you to use your imagination. One of the things that we've noticed with grandchildren, and you've probably noticed it with children or grandchildren, is that it's really hard to get them to want to do anything except be on a device. And the problem with the device is the lack of imagination with that kind of stimulus coming all the time. I'm afraid we as Americans have gotten so busy at times that we've let our imagination not do what it should be. Uh, And so I want you to test your imagination as I close this morning and listen to this paragraph, which sort of could be theologically highfalutin, but I don't want it to be for you. I want you to think about this. This is a description of what God has in store for us as the final goal of the triune work of God in salvation. So here's here's what Stan Grenz says, and I'm, I'm going to pause on each one of these to allow your imagination to think about this goal of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation 
And it's the establishment of a community. Okay? It's not just persons getting saved. It's the establishment of a community. And here's what makes up that community. Number one, a redeemed people. People who have had their sins forgiven. Secondly, a redeemed people dwelling in a redeemed community. A community where people have recognized they are sinners and have received salvation. And finally, this redeemed people are dwelling in a renewed earth. In a renewed earth, enjoying reconciliation with their God, fellowship with each other, and harmony with all creation. Think about what an incredible place that is. He goes on to say this, he says, Consequently, the goal of community lies at the heart of God's actions in history, and God's ultimate intention for creation is the establishment of community. Friends, we're not intended to manage our Christian experience alone. The intention of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we are invited into the community of God Together we live in community and we will be in community forever in heaven. How do we embrace Christian community in the present? You've heard me speak often of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Christian theologian was assassinated or killed uh, in uh, a concentration camp just days before it was liberated by the Allies. He wrote a wonderful little book called Life Together. I highly recommend it in which he talks about what Christian community should be like now. And he says this, he says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevoted, as sinners The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. So friends, I close with this reminder that we are sinners. Change starts with us. Change starts with us. Not with the Democrats. Not with the Republicans. Not with the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals, but us. When we recognize our own sin and find forgiveness, then we're in a position to embrace others. We can embrace fellow sinners and work together for God's purpose to see his kingdom come and his will be done at North Sound Church and in this community that we call home. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. Again, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. And in these troubled times, Lord, I pray that we as Christians would be different people, recognizing that we are part of an amazing community And that at the same time, saint and sinner. 
and the fact that we are sinners, may it cause us to approach others with humility, recognizing, Lord, our need of you and the responsibility we have to carry your work forward. In Jesus' name, amen.